chapter 5 as we continue our series on the Sermon of the Mount that covers Matthew chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount is a remarkably powerful message and is the perhaps the clearest summary of what Christ expects from his followers. So I think we should listen with very close ear, right, when we hear these words. As we have seen so far, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with what are called Beatitudes. And we saw that that comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessing or happy. These are a series of statements that Jesus gives that form the core of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus says a person is blessed, it means that that person is a recipient of divine favor. With each beatitude, Jesus says that there is a different characteristic that we are to display, such as being poor in spirit, merciful, and so on. Now, we have said that these characteristics are for all of God's people, right? We don't kind of say that one's for this person, this one's for me, or whatever. These characteristics are meant for all of us, and these beatitudes, with each of them, Jesus gives a blessing. So, for example, the meek shall inherit the earth. There is a blessing attached to each of these different statements that Jesus makes. So we have covered five of the eight Beatitudes for the sake of time. Got a lot to cover here today. Not going to review them. So let's go ahead and move it, pick up where we left off last time with the sixth Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, it's found on page 810. And so in this sixth Beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the characteristic for God's people is that we would be pure in heart. Jesus' teaching here stands in contrast to the really strong overemphasis that the religious leaders of the day put on external rituals. In other words, you do this and you do that, then you're right with God. Jesus comes along and puts the focus on our heart. Now, what is the heart in Scripture? The heart is the core of who you are. It's the center of your personality. Out of your heart comes your thoughts, your will, your feelings, your affections. Everything that you say and do comes from your heart, right? Now, the Bible soberly, and I would say accurately, gives a very... Um, dark description of the human heart, accurate description of the human heart, I should say, that it has good and evil mixed in it, doesn't it? Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a tough verse, isn't it? You don't see that on a lot of like bumper stickers on cars or whatever, do you? Or magnets on, on refrigerators or whatever, but that's what the Bible says. Matthew 15, 9 and 10, Jesus says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So it's not what comes out of you that matters as much as what is in you. Does that make sense? So Jesus uttered those words 2,000 years ago. Do you think anything has changed since then? Nothing has changed. Look at the, at the daily headlines of our 
newspapers and so forth. The heart is sinful. This past week, everybody's been engrossed by the unbelievable cheating scandal of Major League Baseball. Unbelievable, the scope and depth of this of organizations who methodically plan to cheat. We, on one hand, are astounded at this, but on the other hand, we shouldn't be astounded because these things have been going on since mankind fell. The human heart, by nature, is corrupt. So in contrast, Jesus calls his followers to be pure in heart. We are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different, and we can be different because God has empowered us to be different. That's the good news. It's not just human willpower, but it's God's power to do this. In the Old Testament, God promised that, look, one day I'm going to give the Spirit of God in you, and you will have a new heart instead of a heart of stone. I'm going to write my laws Not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. You can keep these by God's grace and by God's power. See Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 for those promises. So church, you can grow in purity of heart. We should be asking God to grow us in that. To echo what David said in Psalm 51.10 when he said, Create in me a clean heart. going to discuss that in a few weeks, how that plays out with anger and lust. So I encourage you to be there for that. So what's the blessing for the pure in heart? They shall see God. They shall see God. It should be the longing of every Christian to see God. You see that hope running throughout the pages of Scripture. Perhaps you've heard the phrase before, the beatific vision. There's that word again, beatific, the blessed vision. That that refers to one day when God's people see him in all his fullness and us in resurrection, resurrected bodies no longer tainted by sin. Now, we can't take in all the fullness of God because only God can fully grasp God. But there will be something different, something radically different than what we have now. Like now we know God exists. We have teachings from the Word of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But all of that church pales in comparison to one day seeing God. We should long for that. Is that what you long for? 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I, know I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what we see right now is just a dim reflection. 1 John 3.12 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is what the church should be waiting for, amen? I gave this illustration once before, and I think it's helpful, so I'm going to go back to it here. I'm going to recycle this one. I thought it was helpful. I remember hearing a talk one time about the Western expansion in the United States, how travelers, these settlers, when they would go across America, they would have this incredible experience when they would go across the plains, which are kind of long and, you know, desolate stretch of land, and then they would see for the first time the Rocky Mountains. 
We actually have diaries of what they did. Some of them, the people cried. Some of them broke down emotionally. Some of them fainted when they saw that sight. Now, of course, I'm sure they all heard about it, right? They might have seen diagrams of it, but when they saw those Rockies for the first time, it was an overwhelming experience. And I think of that when we think about God. We know about Him, and there's, there's sketchings and drawings and so forth that we might have in our mind, but we can't wait to see God ourselves. We don't want to just depend upon what we have heard about or this and that. We want to see God and experience God for ourselves. I've been wanting to see the Grand Canyon for many years, and I've seen photographs, and people have talked to me about it, and that's great, but I want to see it myself. For those who are pure in heart, one day you're going to see God. That's going to be a great day. Amen? Verse 9, Jesus gives us the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So with this characteristic, God's people are called to be peacemakers. The followers of Christ are expected to be peacemakers. Now, it's important to understand what we mean when we say the word peace. What biblical peace means. It, it, it means more than the the absence of conflict. Someone has joked, quote, that peace is the brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. That's kind of been mankind's history, hasn't it? The absence of conflict. We think, okay, when people just stop fighting, that's biblical peace. Say, for example, uh, US, the U.S. and Iran, right now there's nothing going on specifically and so we say, okay, on one hand, there's a, there's a moment of peace there. But that's not biblical peace, is it? Biblical peace is wholeness, restoration. Do you see the difference? We don't have peace with Iran in that sense. Biblical peace means wholeness and restoration. Blessed are those who go around restoring things, making things right. Now, it's interesting because Jesus, on one hand, was incredibly resolved and absolute in his standards and his beliefs, right? I mean, Jesus was just like that. But he was also a peacemaker, wasn't he? Think about his disciples. On one hand, he chose a man named Matthew who was a tax collector. They were despised by their fellow Jews. Why? Because they collected taxes from their fellow citizens to support uh, an oppressive, pagan Roman Empire. Do you think those people were very popular? Knocking on your door, wanting to collect taxes for the Roman Empire? The Jews saw these tax collectors as greedy traitors. That's Matthew. Jesus also chose Simon. Not Simon Peter, but the other Simon whose label was the zealot. The zealots were incredibly anti-Roman. They would even take up arms against the Romans sometimes in rebellion. So Jesus chooses Matthew and Jesus chooses Simon to be his disciples. I think they might have had some interesting conversations sometimes around the fire. Jesus could not have chosen two people more different than them. Yet the gospel makes peace between enemies, even bitter enemies. 
The union of the Jewish and Gentile Christians was astounding in the first century. It was unbelievable that they came together under Christ. God astoundingly unites enemies. And we should still expect the astounding today, church, that enemies can be united in Jesus Christ. And we should seek peace in our church. Peace doesn't just happen, does it? It takes a lot of prayer. And it takes a lot of conversations to create peace, to make peace. And I don't mean just leaders maybe talk to a certain person or group that are having some difficulties. It takes an entire church having small conversations to make peace in the life of a church. It can't be one pastor or a group of leaders. The entire church says, you know what? Peace matters immensely to me. I'm going to take the mantle and be a peacemaker in my church. You're going to do that? You're going to be a peacemaker? Every church needs it. So we should be making peace in the body of Christ, but we should also make peace in the world as much as possible. We know that there's not going to be a permanent peace until Jesus returns. But Scripture calls us that we should live at peace with other people. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Christians should be at peace with the world as much as possible. And we should, when we are living our lives and when we see neighbors and coworkers and classmates at odds with one another, you know who should step up? Christians. To be agents of reconciliation. Do you believe that? Christians should be the ones that people point to and say, man, we got something going on between these two people. Let's call, uh, let's call Sally over there because she is a strong Christian and she just always makes peace with people. We should rise to the forefront of people's thinking when they think about peacemakers around them. We should be the one to say, you know what, let's hear the other side. Or, you know, let's cool it down a little bit here. Let's speak respectfully to each other. Or we need to address this issue and stop sweeping it under the rug. Friends, never minimize how important it is peacemaking is to God. Even if you think, oh, this is just a small little thing. God doesn't care. God is glorified when his people are peacemakers. By the way, can I just say this? Sometimes professing Christians can be flat out mean. Flat out mean. We're ready to take sides prematurely when there's a debate going on. We don't want to really want to listen to the other side. But boy, we are ready to pounce on that debate, ready to pounce on that person, whether they're in the church or outside the church, and just lambast them. I'm not saying have strong views that you hold to, but I'm saying the things that you say are cruel and rude. It grieves me to hear sometimes the things that Christians, professing Christians, say in the public square. You cannot be a mean, angry peacemaker. Do you see the contradiction in terms? May that not be the case with us. So what's the blessing for the peacemakers? 
They shall be called sons of God. Now to clarify, that, that, that word sons is, is what they would say is a generic plural, meaning it applies to both males and females. It's like the word mankind. We know that refers to both males and females. So God calls himself, God himself calls us sons and daughters of God. Obviously that's not anything to do biologically. God is spirit. But he's speaking about our spiritual adoption as children of God. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Romans 8, 14 to 15 declares, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Church, we are welcomed into the family of God, and we're going to stay there forever. We have all the privileges of adoption. Forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, answered prayer, and so forth. I think the church, all of us as individuals, really need to meditate long and hard on the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. That is your identity. You are not first an American or a husband or a mother or a worker. You are a child of God. That is your identity, and that is the rock that will carry you when all those other things that you look to will struggle and fall apart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Verse 10, Jesus gives us the eighth and last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So with this characteristic, with this beatitude, the characteristic is that they, they will be persecuted. You will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Did you hear that he says righteousness' sake? He's not saying that if you do something sinful and then you catch fall, fallout from that, that that's persecution. If you do something sinful at work, if you, you know, get into an argument with your boss for an unjust reason and you get fired or whatever the case may be, that's not persecution, okay? Sometimes we want to be persecuted for everything. Jesus says persecution for righteousness' sake. Sometimes, and yes, people do not like to be around righteousness. Ever had that happen in your, in your life before? People don't want to be around righteousness. Why? Because it convicts them of their sin. And they react negatively. In 1 Peter 4, 3-4, he says... For the time that it is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, speaking of just sinners, not Gentile Christians, but just sinners, want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what? They malign you. People become upset if you don't laugh at their raunchy jokes, right? Or you're not watching all the sinful movies they're watching. Or using the same foul language. Or, you know, there's a big gossip circle going on and you're just like, I'm not part of... They don't like that, do they, sometimes? Their conscience is bothered by your righteousness and they want you to either join them or they're going to persecute you in some way. This is the way it is, church. I love the fact that Jesus is not a salesman, Right? He lets you know, if you're going to follow me, this is what you should expect. It's not all a bed of roses. 
What's the blessing for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that the kingdom of Christ, we already talked about this, the kingdom of Christ that he inaugurated when he came to this world, when he now tells us we can enter the kingdom of heaven, we can have forgiveness of sins and have a relationship with God, eternal life, all those things that he's going to culminate when he returns. That's the kingdom of heaven. So when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you will receive the kingdom of heaven. By the way, look down at your Bible there. Notice that the reward for the first and the eighth beatitudes, did you pick up on that? They're the same. The kingdom of heaven. This is called a bracket. What that means is that all of this is grouped together, right? The first and the eighth shows that all of this passage is one big grouping. That also means that all of these beatitudes are for the entire group of listeners, you and I. Again, we don't get to select which ones we like. All of these apply to us. This is not a buffet line. In verses 11 to 12, then Jesus elaborates on this last beatitude. It's not a new beatitude because it doesn't follow the format that he's given with the others. And then he says in verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sometimes you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then sometimes Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted because of me, because of Jesus. Why is that? Well, you know, I have found that everybody likes to talk about Jesus when the conversation is on him being a great man, a great teacher, a great prophet. Amen. We all love that Jesus. But as soon as it goes to the next level, the biblical level of Jesus is God in human flesh, who is the exclusive way to salvation, that's when people get their feathers ruffled, right? That's when people push back. That's crossing the line. And you might be rejected just as Jesus was rejected. We have to remember that, don't we? That Jesus was rejected. He didn't win the popularity contest. He was rejected by the crowds because they wanted a Messiah in their own mind. They did not accept him for who he claimed to be. And Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, Jesus points out that sometimes persecution means that we are falsely accused. In other words, it's not even right, but the, you just get stuck with these labels. In the first few centuries, the church was falsely accused for different things. One of the accusations was, the, was that the, the church, they were a bunch of atheists. You say, why did they say that? Well, they rejected this pantheon of Roman gods. And so, well, if you don't believe all these Roman gods, well, then you've got to be atheists. No, we believe in one God, but no, you're atheists. They said they also practice incest. Why'd they say that? Well, because they saw husbands and spouse, spouses refer to their spouse as a brother and sister in Christ. So you guys must be incestuous. They accuse Christians of cannibalism. Say, so where'd they get that from? Well, we talk about at the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ. And so you guys are eating Jesus' body and blood. So they were taking these claims, these, the faith claims of, of Christianity, and they were twisting it, weren't they? To make Christians look bad. Boy, I'm so glad that was 2,000 years ago and it doesn't happen anymore. 
In our nation, Christians are labeled as intolerant, hateful, and bigoted. Yes, there are some, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps that that label might be true. But for the vast majority of Christians, that label is not true. It is a false accusation. But it's amazing how labels have the ability to still land, don't they? Do not be surprised. Jesus is telling you, right? He's not hiding anything. There's no bait and switch. He's telling you what you should expect. Also, Jesus says, though, that we should rejoice when we are persecuted. Now, Jesus is not saying that in the midst of that persecution, when someone says something mean or you lose a job, that yes, oh, I delight so much in the persecution itself, but rather it, it causes you to go to something that far surpasses any pain or suffering. And that is the reward that you're promised. What does he say there? Your reward in heaven is great. You might experience persecution now by a human, but God will reward you eternally for your faithfulness. Let that be what motivates us, church. Also, Jesus points out that persecution is nothing new. It went on in the Old Testament days with the prophets, these great people of God who would be God's spokespeople. They were persecuted. They were persecuted by their own people, the Jewish people sometimes. Jeremiah was rejected by his people Elijah, this incredible miracle-working prophet, was chased around by Ahab and Jezebel. It's nothing new. Don't feel like you've done something wrong. A follower of Christ, if they're living for Christ, will experience persecution. 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3:12 says, "All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." If we experience no persecution in our lives, we should honestly assess, am I living for Christ? We've seen that it comes in a variety of ways. You know, there'll be false accusations, other ways that it might happen. Maybe at work, you're left out at some, sometimes by coworkers or at school or so forth. Maybe you have friends and family members that push back when they hear about what you're doing for Christ or they hear about how you've come to know Christ. And you know what? I'm not going to come to your baptism. I don't support what you believe anymore and so forth. Those things sting. Those things hurt. But the reality is, is that we have to go back to what Jesus has promised that we will be blessed if we stay faithful to our Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So church, those are the eight Beatitudes that Jesus tells us. As I said last week, I would encourage each of us to take some time, take a Beatitude, one a day, and pray and meditate on that Beatitude and see how God might use it to transform you and to grow you more like Christ. Hang in there with me. I'm almost done. I got a little bit more. I wanted to put all this together because this is really the closing of the whole introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what these famous words in verses 13 to 16, where Jesus talks about us being the salt and light of the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. So we as Christians often say we're to be the salt and light of the world, right? Well, that comes right here from this passage. That's where we get that idea from. But I want us to remember that that doesn't just come out of thin air, but it's directly attached to the Beatitudes. Does that make sense? In other words, as we live out these Beatitudes, then we will be the salt and the light of the world. Now, what is Jesus getting at when he says that we are to be the salt and the light of the world? Let's start with that word salt. Obviously, salt was used to flavor things, and that was important. That perhaps is maybe like a secondary thing that Jesus is getting at there. But primarily, I think he's getting at the fact that salt was a preservative in those days. They used salt to preserve things. Remember, they did not have refrigeration. And they lived in a very hot climate. And so when they would prepare meats especially, they would salt it because it killed or spread the, it prevented the spread of bacteria and would make the meat last a lot longer. Salt was incredibly valuable in that society. So when Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, he's saying that we are a preserving agent. We hinder the spiritual decay and corruption of the world. As we live out these beatitudes, as we show mercy, as we make peace, we benefit the world. And the church has really done this through the ages. For instance, in that early church era, they brought a lot of change to the Roman Empire which was an incredibly dark and brutal world. Talked about the sanctity of human life a few moments ago. Well, human life as a result of the church's influence was greatly elevated. You see, previously, babies, newborn babies, would often be left out in the woods to die or put on garbage heaps or drowned, especially female babies. Gladiator games were absolute bloodbaths of animal and human death. And people flocked to them, filled the Colosseum to watch this spectacle. It all ended primarily because of Christianity. The status of women and children was greatly enhanced as the biblical standard of a monogamous marriage became more prevalent. Christians made tremendous impacts with charity, health care, education, and the abolition of slavery. On and on you could go. And as Christianity has spread throughout the world, it's helped reduce or eliminate all kinds of evil. In our nation, Christianity brings tremendous benefits that you don't ever hear about. Stronger families, marriages, less crime, more charitable giving, more volunteers, people who have better physical and mental health, and on and on it goes. There's a gentleman by the name of Rodney Stark. He's a preeminent sociologist at Baylor University. He wrote a book called America's Blessings, How Religion Benefits Everyone, Even Atheists. That's a great title. He makes the case that religion brings tremendous benefit to society. Listen to this. He, he, he tallied up the sheer dollar figures that Christians bring to our nation, the amount of blessing and impact that our services bring to the country. Does that make sense? He says that the influence of Christianity brings a $2.6 trillion impact to our country. Did you guys get that? I didn't say million. I didn't say billion. I said trillion dollars. In other words, 
you pull the Christians out of our country, we lose a net positive of $2.6 trillion. We are the salt of the earth. But we can lose our beneficial status, can't we? As Jesus warned there, salt can lose its taste. Now, technically speaking, pure salt, sodium chloride, can't lose its saltiness. But the salt of Jesus' region and day could lose its saltiness because it already had impurities in there. And when that happened, they would just take that salt and just throw it to the ground because it was of no benefit at all. Salt could lose its worth. Likewise, a disciple can lose their worth by sin. A sin focus, I'm not saying we all sin, we repent, we move on. I'm talking about someone who gets entangled into sin. They can lose their worth to Christ. They're no longer a preserving agent. That's why it is essential to live out the Sermon on the Mount to maintain this righteousness that Jesus calls us to. Because if we don't, we lose that ability to be a transforming agent in our society. And the Lord just looks at us and says, you're worthless. You're not doing anything for me. Yeah, you can be forgiven. Yeah, you can go to heaven, but you're not doing anything for me. Which is what we're called to do as the salt of the earth. When we hear these words, I think it should cause us to kind of gulp, right? I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be something that is worthless to the Lord. That's why we should take these words seriously. Amen, church? Finally, we are the light of the world. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, light was associated with that coming Messiah. Isaiah 42, 49 says that he's going to be a light for the nations. So he's going to bring salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. Jesus comes along. He knows that those passages refer to him. And he says, I am the light of the world, doesn't he? He knows that that is who he is. But why does it say that we're the light of the world? Where we are his extension, aren't we? We're not Jesus, obviously, but we are his body, and we reflect him to this world. Did you see there it says a, that we will shine, right? You can't remain hidden, and we are to put that light up on a stand, amen? You don't put it under something to hide it. You're to put it in its most visible place so that as many people as possible will see that light, so we have that responsibility to demonstrate the light of Christ to our world. To show them by our words and our conduct that we have been transformed. And we want them to know who Christ is. It's not about us. Who gets the glory there? The Father gets the glory because he has changed us. And we're simply telling others, here, I was in darkness, but the light brought me out. You too can go to this light and have your life transformed. That should encourage us, church, that your words, your actions, God will use to draw people to himself with all of our fumbling around and, and misquoting the Bible verse and, you know, not living the way we should perfectly. God can still use it 
because you are the light of the world. And he will use every single thing that you do in his name to draw people to himself. Does that encourage you? That is what we're called to do, church, to live out this high calling of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I told you these are tough words. These are hard words. But this is what we can do by the power of the living Christ working in our lives. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this very strong calling that you've given us. Thank you for these precious beatitudes that are so short, but yet loaded with truth. Lord, we want to be blessed. And we want to display these characteristics for your name and for your glory. So that we might be the salt and the light you've called us to be. Lord, I pray all of us would do some sober reflection about how we're living that out. May we lay aside those ways and areas where we are not the salt and the light of the world that you've called us to be. But may we be encouraged that you are always there ready and willing to forgive us and to use us in an amazing way. God, we look forward to transformation day by day as we live out these beatitudes and become the salt and light you've called us to be. And Lord, this morning as we've been speaking about following you, I do just want to extend that invitation for someone who's truly never trusted Christ, never had their heart changed by the gospel, that today they might give their life to you, to believe in Christ for the first time as their Savior and their Lord, to see that they need a Savior to forgive them of their sin, and that they truly want peace with you. God, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for this wonderful time. We get to soak up your word. May it do its work, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.